Good morning. Before Josh walks away, I just want to tell you how the worship team encouraged me this morning. They told me that if I took off this jacket and just had these pants and this shirt on, that I could be doing a pantomime. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. No problem. You know, when Cindy and I first moved to Erie, we were kind of surprised at the number of suntanning businesses that we saw up and down the streets. And I was reminded of that when I read this quote from a dermatologist who issued the following warning to people in our country who are constantly striving for that deep golden brown tan. He said, today's deeply tan beauties are tomorrow's wrinkled prunes. <laughs> you know, Pastor Mark just finished a series on the seven deadly sins. And as I was thinking about sin and suntans, not that getting a suntan is a sin, but with sin, it may seem like it's great today, but tomorrow is a different story. And often we hear people say something like this. It seems like everything that is fun is sin. But maybe it's just that we've set our sights too low in terms of fun and pleasure. Maybe we've accepted a much cheaper imitation of fun. Here's a line from uh, several years back, several decades back, of a song from Billy Joel called, Only the Good Die Young. They say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. Only the good die young. So says the prophet Billy Joel. <laughs> Here's what King David says in Psalm 1611. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand are pleasures forever. I don't know about you, but fullness of joy sounds pretty good to me. So I think it's a lie to believe that sin is fun and godliness is boring. The truth about sin, as it's revealed in the Bible and in human experience, is far different than, than the bill of goods that we've been sold. The truth about sin is that it's deceptive and it's destructive and that it's deadly. In 1982 on ABC Evening News, they reported on an unusual work of modern art. It wasn't a painting, it was a chair that was sitting in one place with a shotgun affixed to it. But the gun was not facing away from the chair, it was facing towards the person who was sitting in the chair. And not only that, the shotgun was loaded and it was set with a timer for some indeterminate time in the next 100 years to go off. And you know, people stood in line for blocks to be able to sit in that chair for one minute, not knowing if the gun would go off. And we shake our heads and we think, who would be foolish enough to do something like that? And yet we play the same kind of a game with sin, believing that that gun of sin will not go off, that there won't be consequences. Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. See, God tells us that there are consequences. That there is something that's going to happen because of what we do and what we invest our lives in. So in light of that, let's just remind ourselves of three truths about sin. 
The first is that sin will take you further than you want to go. The second is that sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And the third is that sin will cost you more than you want to pay. I could use a lot of examples from the Bible. I focused on six this morning. These are different characters in the Bible, real people or groups of people. And I'm going to take us through each one of these three points with these six people. The first is King David. I think most of you are aware of who he is, but let me tell you just a little bit about him. King David was a wonderful, great man. As a matter of fact, God declared him to be so. He said that David was a man after his own heart. Do you know how many people God says that about that are recorded in the Bible? Just that one. David is the only one. He was a great man, a wise man, a strong man, a godly man, and for the most part, a pure man. But sin deceived David, and it was destructive and deadly. You remember the sad story of David and Bathsheba? Let me just give you a thumbnail sketch of this. David was the king of Israel, and in those days being the king of Israel also meant that you were the commander-in-chief or the general of the army. And so they didn't sit back in their oval office giving commands. They were on the battlefield. But for some reason, David was not on the battlefield while his army was that day. Instead, he was back in the comfort of his own home, sleeping in his own bed. And he got up at night because he couldn't sleep and was walking on the roof of his home. And remember, the homes were not uh, with roofs like this, like ours are. They were flat roofs and uh, had a, like a patio on top of them. So he's up on top of his roof, walking around with a view of the city. And he looks over at uh, one edge, and he sees a woman bathing, a beautiful woman. Now, if he had walked away at that point, that would have been the end of the story. But instead of walking away or going inside, he stayed and he took a second look and he continued to look. And then he decided that he would try to find out who this was and bring her over to his house. So he goes to one of his servants and he says, that woman over there, I want you to bring her over here. Now, a smart servant would have said, yes, sir, right away, sir. A wise servant said, oh, you mean Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? That took a lot of bravery for that man to say that. Because David had the power of life and death over this servant. But he was a godly man and he told him what was what. And so that night, Bathsheba was brought over to David's home, and he spent the night with her. David tried to cover up his sin. He brought Uriah back from the battlefield and told him, since you're such a great servant of mine, I want you to stay with your wife tonight. What he was trying to do was make sure that if a, a child was conceived, that nobody would think it was his, but that they would think it was just between the husband and wife. But Uriah said, I'm not going to sleep with my wife while my fellow soldiers are out battling for you and for the country. That would be wrong. And so he wouldn't do it. David felt that he had no alternative other than to send Uriah back to the front line with orders 
taken by his own hand to pull all the soldiers back from Uriah so that he would be killed in battle. And at that point, David took Bathsheba to be his wife. I'm reasonably sure that when David first looked from his rooftop and saw Bathsheba that evening, that he never planned to commit adultery with her. But he didn't stop to realize that sin will take you further than you want to go. And instead of immediately turning away, he kept looking, and before the night was over, this godly man and king would sin in a way that he never thought that he would. It's always true. Sin will take you further than you want to go. And this truth is illustrated in other uh, people throughout the Bible. The next one I want to share with you is the patriarch Jacob. Jacob was jealous of the fact that his brother was older and would receive the birthright, the blessing of his father. And so he tried to steal that birthright by being deceitful. Now, you might think, what's the big deal? I mean, this is just a sibling rivalry, isn't it? Just two competitive brothers battling against each other. But you never escape the truth that sin will take you further than you want to go, even when that sin is simply a wrong attitude towards someone else. Jacob spent most of the rest of his life avoiding his brother and living in a distant land. The next example is the children of Israel. Now, you remember when the children of Israel were living in Palestine and there was a famine that they were, uh, their brother, who I won't go through the whole story, but Joseph was in Egypt as the second in command and had set up a system where even though this famine was coming and came, lasted for seven years, that his brothers and their families came from Israel and were saved as well as all the people of Egypt. But then they stayed genera generation after generation until there was a ruler, a pharaoh, who no longer remembered Joseph or what he had done for them and for the children of Israel, and he enslaved them. That lasted for 400 years. And then God raised up a, a great leader named Moses who took them out of slavery and out of Egypt and led them to the Promised Land, a miraculous thing, through the ten plagues that were left on Egypt and through leading them through the parting of the Red Sea, so that they walked across, not on muddy land, but on dry land. And then when they had fully crossed and the Egyptian army came chasing them to seek to destroy them, they were covered by the waters and destroyed. Now they've come to a place called Kadesh, which is right on the border of the promised land. And maybe they're thinking the right thing to do from a military standpoint is to send some spies in. So they picked one spy from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Twelve spies go in there, they come back, ten of them come back with the same report. The people are too big, they're too strong, their armies are too fearful uh, for us, and so we're never going to be able to conquer them. Two spies, godly men, Joshua and Caleb, come back and say, of course they're big, of course they have armies. We have a greater God. Remember, he just delivered us from the greatest army on the face of the earth. He brought us miraculously through the Red Sea. He'll do the same for us now. But that bad word spread throughout the adults in the Israeli camp. Let me just read to you what happened in, from Numbers chapter 13. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and their cities are fortified and very large. 
And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we, we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Now notice that progression of unbelief. It caused them to focus on the wrong thing. They're focusing on the people and the height of the people rather than on God. And it was contagious. It spread from these ten spies to the entire adult population of the children of Israel. It caused them to say some very foolish things. In chapter 14, verse 2, they said, If only we had died in Egypt or in the desert. Yeah, that sounds like a great alternative, doesn't it? It caused them to slam the character of God in in verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And then in the very next verse, they wanted to choose a new leader instead of Moses and then have that leader take them back to Egypt. I mean, come on. Moses is, if not one of, the greatest leaders of all time. We want to get rid of him and take somebody else to be our leader, probably one of those ten spies, to lead us back into slavery? That just sounds foolish. And then we read in verses 5 through 10 that it caused them to begin to reject all spiritual counsel. So God pronounces judgment on them that they would all die in the wilderness, all of the adults. God was ready to give them the promised land, but because of their sin, they went into the desert and they just walked around in circles for 40 years waiting for every last adult to die. The only ones that didn't were Moses and Joshua and Caleb. The next example is King Solomon. He was the wisest man who ever lived aside from Jesus Christ. Surely if anybody could keep from falling into sin's trap, it would be Solomon. But Solomon had this weakness, a love for women. He married 700 women and took another 300 to be concubines. Now, trust me, nobody wakes up one morning and says, I think I'll go get a 1,000 wives. It's something that happens over time, isn't it? You try one extra one that you shouldn't have had, and then, oh, that didn't, that didn't do anything bad. Let's go get another one. And, but remember also, this is the world's way of thinking in forming alliances with other countries. Solomon's thinking, if I marry this guy's daughter, then he's not going to attack me. And so I'm going to marry uh, the princesses of all these surrounding countries to form these alliances. He's relying on wisdom that's not coming from God because God told the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 17, 17, gave instructions for how kings should live. He said he must not take many wives. And what's the reason? 
his heart will be led astray. And that's exactly what happened to Solomon. Who knows what he was thinking? But it's possible that he was thinking something like this. God bless me with great wisdom. I don't have anything to worry about. My heart won't turn away from God. I can handle this. It's not going to affect my relationship with God. How many of us have said those very same words? I can handle this. This isn't going to affect my relationship with God. We all think that we can handle it, but it ends up handling us. Even the wisest man on earth could not escape the truth that sin will take you further than you want to go. The next example is Lot. In case you're trying to place that character in your mind, that is the nephew of the patriarch Abraham. Abraham and Lot left where they were living. They were the first ones. Uh, Abraham was the first one to receive the promise that they were going to be taken to the promised land. And so they're going. They've got big families. They're wealthy men, both of them. And wealth was not measured by your bank account in those days. It was measured by how much livestock you had, how many servants you had. And so because these men were both wealthy, they had lots of livestock and many servants. And it became so much that they really couldn't stay together because there wasn't enough of the grass to feed all the cattle and the sheep and the camels and the goats. And so Abraham, being a wise man, took his nephew up on top of a hill and he said, look out over all this land. We're going to have to separate so that the land can support us. And I'm going to let you choose where you and your family is going to go and then I'll go to the other place. Now, Abraham, being the oldest one, could have said, I'm the one that's going to choose, because that was his right. But he was a gracious man, and he allowed Lot to choose. So as Lot is looking out over this land, he sees all this land, and then he sees two cities over here as well. And he thought, the grass looks really green over there. But there's also these cities. And even though I've heard some things about how wicked they are, I can trade with them, and this will be a really profitable experience for me. And so he chose to go and live before the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham went the other direction. Now, Genesis chapter 13, 12 through 13 says that Lot didn't actually live in those wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, at least not at first, because he knew they were wicked. But he did live near enough so that he could take advantage of the opportunities there without actually becoming involved in their lifestyle. Again, isn't that something that we do today? Get close enough so that we can enjoy some of the prosperity, thinking that we can handle it. But remember, sin will always take you further than you want to go. And let's look at the progression with Lot. In chapter 13, verse 12, it says, He pitched his tent toward Sodom. In chapter 14, verse 12, it says that he's now living in Sodom. And then a few chapters later, we're told that now he's sitting in the gate with the other business leaders as one of the leaders of the, the business community. Lot unfortunately realized too late that sin takes us further than we want to go. The last example I want to share with you is Ananias and Sapphira from the book of Acts. These are uh, a husband and wife a couple that lived in the early church right after Jesus had gone back to heaven. 
There was a lot of persecution that was happening in those days. And so there were many people in the church that were doing without some of the basic necessities of life. They didn't have enough food to eat. Maybe they didn't have a place to sleep. Uh, Whatever it was, there were some wealthier people in the church community that decided that they would sell off some of their property and bring the proceeds to the disciples to distribute among the people. It was kind of a, a New Testament version of the Benevolence Fund. And so as Ananias and Sapphira were watching this, they saw how well-received these people, these generous people were. And they thought, you know what? I want people to look at me like that. I want people to think that I'm generous. And so as they're looking at at their possessions, uh, they've got this timeshare down in Ocean City, and they decide that they're going to sell that off, and they're going to bring the proceeds to the disciples. But before they get to that point of bringing it, they decide between themselves, you know what? We don't really have to give all of it. I mean, people can think we are, but we don't have to bring all of it. You know, Johnny needs to get some braces, and we could stash away some in our 401k so that we don't become one of those people that needs the benevolence fund. And then there's that really cool Mercedes chariot that I've had my eye on. And so they decide we're going to take a part of what we sold the property for. Now, was that wrong? No, it wasn't. But what was wrong was that they wanted everybody to think that they were giving the entire amount. And so whether they said that or just allowed people to think it, they didn't correct them. The Bible tells us that what they were doing was lying to the Holy Spirit. But come on, it's just a little lie, right? Everybody tells a little lie now and then. They never realized in the privacy of their home when they first began talking about this deception that sin will take you further than you want to go. Not too long ago, there was a huge tree in Colorado that fell to the ground with a resounding crash after standing, uh, scientists estimated, for about 400 years, probably standing before the time when Columbus discovered America. And as they began to look at these rings in the tree, uh, they discovered that this tree uh, had weathered many things. First of all, they saw that it had been struck by lightning 14 times and yet remained standing. It had braved some great windstorms and remained standing. It had even defied an earthquake and remained standing. But what happened in the end? Some little beetles bore into the bark and began chewing away at the fiber of the tree until one day it fell over seemingly from nothing. But that's what sin does. It may seem so small and insignificant at first, but it continues to gnaw away at your spiritual life, and it grows until unchecked it leads to your downfall. Well, here's the second point. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And let's look at each one of these uh, six characters again and see how sin will kept them longer than they wanted to stay. The first one, remember, was King David. He commits adultery. He gets Bathsheba pregnant. Then David tries by trickery to have her husband brought from the battlefield to spend some time with his wife to make it appear that the baby was his. Uriah refused to go home while his fellow soldiers were fighting on the battlefield, so David basically sends him with his own death sentence to the front lines. David probably meant for that affair with Bathsheba 
to just be a one-night stand. No doubt he wanted to have his fun and forget about it. I mean, after all, he's the king, right? Who's going to question him? He didn't understand that sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. Had David known that his adultery would lead him to murder one of his most loyal soldiers and that his sin would be exposed and he would have to marry Bathsheba and some more consequ- uh, excuse me, consequences that we'll talk about a little bit later on, he would have never have brought her to his house. That night when he saw Bathsheba on the roof was just one act. But when sin gets its claws on you, it ends up becoming, uh, keeping, staying with you longer than you wanted it to stay. The next one was Jacob. Now, Jacob probably didn't realize when he first harbored these jealousy feelings towards his brother, wishing that he could have some of the blessings that were Esau's because he was the firstborn, how that would get a grip on him over the years. So much so that he ended up doing some very despicable things to his brother and to his father. But sin, if it's not dealt with, will keep you longer than you want to stay. The children of Israel, I'm sure they never realized that when they first doubted and questioned whether God could lead them victoriously into the promised land, that for the next 40 years they would be living as a result of their sin and unbelief just waiting to die. Solomon. How did sin uh, hang on to Solomon? Long enough that he was willing to build an altar to Chemosh and Moloch, false gods that people literally sacrificed their children to. And you know where he built that? On the Mount of Olives, directly across the valley from the temple that he had built for God. What about Lot? Lot may have convinced himself that He would only stay close to Sodom and Gomorrah long enough that his family would be set financially. Then he would retire and move to the country. But he kept staying year after year. And instead of moving away, he kept moving closer and closer and getting more and more involved. What about Ananias and Sapphira? The first lie was probably together when they presented the money, either saying or let others assume that it was the full amount of the proceeds of the real estate deal. Then we're told that each one of them lied separately with the other person not even knowing that they were doing that. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. But there's another truth. This is the third point, that sin will cost you more than you want to pay. Again, let's look at each one of these examples. King David He became an adulterer and a murderer. The baby that was born to him and Bathsheba died very soon after birth. For a full year, David's intimacy with God was completely removed. He was shamed as his sin became known throughout the kingdom. In fact, beyond that, remember what David did was he was trying to make sure that nobody would find out. And yet, not only did the the principal people find out, His entire kingdom found out. And you know what? If you were to ask people today to tell you, tell me three or four things that you know about King David, I'm pretty sure that one of the things that they will tell you is about his sin with Bathsheba. That's thousands of years later and removed by tens of thousands of miles from where it happened. 
As you read about David's family after this point, you find out that one of his sons raped his half-sister. And when one of the other sons found out about it, he killed that first son. And then another son decided that he was going to take over the kingdom from King David and publicly shame him in a way that I'm not even going to discuss this morning. You start adding it all up, and you find that David paid a tremendous price for this one night of sin, because sin will always cost you more than you want to pay. What about Jacob? What did it cost him? 21 years of being separated from his family. 21 years separated from his brother. 21 years of living on the run. When his mother, who was part of this deception, came up with an idea to help Jacob out of this, she sent him to some relatives and said, stay here for a few days and then I'll send word for you when it's safe to come back, when your brother isn't mad at you any longer. A few days. Those few days became 21 years. Can you imagine living all of those years waiting, wondering, is he still mad at me? Is he, is he still going to try to kill me if I come back? You know what else it cost him? He never saw his mother again. She died before he could get back home. What about the children of Israel? What did it cost them? It cost them the very thing that they had been looking for, the thing that they had been waiting for and hoping for and desiring for generation after generation, the promised land. It cost them God's rich blessing, and it cost them their hopes and dreams, and ultimately it cost them their lives as well. And I don't believe that one of them would have said that they wanted to give all of that up. But you see, sin will cost you more than you're willing to pay. King Solomon, what did it cost him? Judgment from God. God declared that he would tear the kingdom away from Solomon and his descendants. And beyond that, he even divided the kingdom into the northern and the southern kingdoms no longer united, and that was all because of Solomon's sin. It cost him peace throughout the kingdom as God raised up enemies to war against him. But most importantly, it cost him the blessing of God on his life and his legacy. What about Lot? What did it cost him? Well, if you remember the story correctly, Lot was, was uh, warned by angels to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah before God sent judgment on them. And so as he and his wife were leaving at the very last moment, along with their two daughters, she just could not bear to leave behind the good life that she thought she had. And so she's looking back over her shoulder, wishing that she could stay. And God turned her into, into a pillar of salt. And then his daughters, his two daughters thinking that maybe it wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah that was destroyed. Maybe it was the whole world. And they're thinking, we're never going to have a family. We're not going to have uh, a legacy. And so they decided to get their father drunk and have incestuous relationships with him. And the two nations that came from those relationships were constantly at war with the nation of Israel. Lot's sin cost him much more than he was willing to pay. Ananias and Sapphira, what did it cost them? It cost them their lives as God struck them down for their deception and sin. And it cost them their reputation, what they were trying to get. 
Remember, they wanted to, to have a good reputation, and you know what? They do have a reputation. Even thousands of years later in the church, they have a reputation, but it's certainly not for being generous. It's for the opposite, and it's for lying to the Holy Spirit. Do you think any of these people could imagine what they would endure because of their sin? Don't be lulled into thinking that somehow you're an exception. There's a retired zookeeper named Gary Richmond, and he tells this story. He says, raccoons are so cute, I, I couldn't resist. <laughs> They're so cute, they have that little bandit mask of fur on their face. But you know what happens around 24 months? They have this glandular change, and after that, they begin to attack their owners. <laughs> okay, that, that, we shouldn't leave that up too long. Did you know that a 30-pound raccoon can take on and beat a 100-pound dog? I read about a, a pastor who had a friend that got a pet raccoon, and, and as he tried to warn her, she listened politely about the coming danger, but her response was, it will be different for me. Three months later, she's in the hospital undergoing plastic surgery for facial lacerations that happened when her adult raccoon attacked her for no apparent reason. Sin too often comes dressed in that adorable costume, and as we play with it, how easy it is to think, it will be different for me. But the results are predictable. Sin will take you further than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And sin will cost you more than you want to pay. It's easy to acknowledge these truths when we're talking about a big sin like adultery or murder in the case of David. But take note, these principles are just as true of what we might call a lesser sin, such as Jacob's jealousy or the children of Israel's unwillingness to simply trust and believe in God or Solomon's belief that he was so wise that he wouldn't be affected or Lot's desire to be where the action was, or Ananias and Sapphira's desire to simply be well thought of. Those cute little raccoons grow up and are vicious. Don't mess around with sin. But here's the good news. God's grace is greater than all our sin. He says that where sin, abound, or where sin has increased, grace abounds all the more. Now, that doesn't mean that we have some kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card, that we can do whatever we want and grace covers it all. Because in the very next chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Now, this is the thing that's hard to understand. Does God's grace cover all of our sins? I heard a few people say, yes, you're right, it does. But does that mean that we're free to just go out and sin because God's grace will cover it? No. Remember Galatians 6, 7? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. If you've been sowing seeds of lust or envy, or thinking you're wiser than you really are, or wanting more in this life rather than seeking first God's kingdom or of caring more about image than substance, it's time to stop. 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But in the very next verse, God says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Proverbs 24:16, we're told that a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. You know what the difference is there? That the righteous people get up again. What does that mean? That means we come to God in repentance. That doesn't just mean, I'm sorry. That means I'm devastated not because of a failure. I'm devastated because I sinned against my God. And I want to turn from that. That's what we want to see in our own lives. Father, would you bring that about in us? A spirit of not saying I'm sorry, but a spirit of repentance. You've told us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, help us to not be deceived by sin. I pray that we would keep short accounts with you, even though we may stumble. Father, we thank you for our church that is here to help us during these times. And we pray that as we take the offering here in a few moments, that that money would be blessed abundantly and that we could use it to share the good news of the gospel with this community and around the world. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers and for being a good and righteous God. In Jesus' name, amen.